Have you ever wondered if fantasy books and television are historically accurate? Dragons, orcs, and magic aside, many of the fantasy stories we know and love draw on actual history and real cultures from around the world. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with fantasy author and history buff, Daniel Olison. When not writing, he works as an editor and translator, often with a focus on historical accuracy. Daniel and I had a fascinating talk about common historical details writers often get wrong, which books do an excellent job of getting things right, and the research sources he recommends for a crash course in world history. This was easily the most informative interview on the show so far, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn. Daniel, it's great to have you here today. Well, thank you for having me. Um, so I guess getting right on into it, uh, the first question I like to ask people is, how did you first fall in love with the fantasy genre and when did you decide that you wanted to become a writer? Yes, uh, I never stood a chance because my father read The Hobbit to me when I was around four years old as a bedtime story. So I was indoctrinated from early age and I just, once I learned to read, I went through his bookshelves, all the fantasy books he had there. Uh, and the second question ties into this as well, because when I remember specifically with timestamps, because my brother were, had his confirmation at age 14 and he received a copy of the Lord of the Rings. We have a lot of copies of Lord of the Rings in my household. <laughs> uh, and so I was nine years old. And I remember seeing the books that my brother got and they had this strange cover and I was really intrigued by them. So I decided, of course, I'm going to read these. Uh, so I read The Lord of the Rings. And at some point doing that, I remember just being completely captivated by how real this world was, how a writer was able to conjure up a world in the reader's imagination that fascinated me. And I decided that I must possess this power. Uh, so ever since then, I've been in pursuit trying to understand how does fantasy work and how do you write fantasy? Tolkien seems like a great starting point for most people. And I know he's especially known for his incredibly deep and intricate world building. So I can definitely see how someone of your particular skills would be interested in that as well. Because I know... Uh, I've heard you affectionately call yourself before a history hoe. Uh, so yes. would you say that's accurate? Very. <laughs> um, well, as a fan of fantasy who knows embarrassingly little about actual history, I always have to wonder how accurate are a lot of the stories that you see on TV or watch in the movies or read in most books. So what do you think? Are they mostly correct or do they get a lot of things wrong? Probably the answer is no surprise that there's very little accuracy. Um, but I think it's also is a bit of a complicated question because if it is fantasy books or TV, they're not obligated to be historically accurate either. You know, it's fantasy. It can be what it wants. But obviously it does borrow a lot from history and that creates expectations. If you see an army with medieval weaponry, even though it's a fantasy show, you expect them to behave and fight as a medieval army would. Uh, and it's in that intersection that it becomes interesting. How accurate should you be and where does it matter? And definitely it's very obvious that usually the entertainment aspect is more important, especially if it's something on the screen. You know, it, what matters is that this battle looks cool. And I can get that argument as well, that it's more important to create a good experience. But just as the viewer, you should definitely be aware you are not learning any history from watching this. You're just being entertained. Yeah, I know uh, whenever I see a battle in a movie or on TV, it's 99.9% .9 of the time. It's always two armies just standing in formation, looking at each other and then breaking ranks and just charging at each other with uh, no coordination whatsoever. That is exactly right and exactly what would never happen. Because if you break formation like that, well, you're going to 
get cut down. And you're, usually you'd be equipped with spears, which are most effective in formation. So going into close, really close combat like that negates all the advantage you have of having a reach weapon. From books, I kind of expect that swords are the most common weapon, but I realize that's uh, kind of reserved for the wealthy and not maybe necessarily the first weapon of choice. Yeah, that's very interesting because what you never see and often never read is that the sword is never really a primary weapon, not even for like a knight or someone of wealth, because unless it is a two-handed enormous sword, a sword just doesn't have enough reach to be useful as your first weapon. It's your sidearm. You have a spear or maybe a two-handed axe or hammer or something like that so that you can you know, kill the enemy before he can reach you. So no professional warrior would ever go into battle with just like a one-handed sword. You would always have a longer weapon with greater reach to rely on first and then switch to the sword. Yeah, that makes sense. And so I guess we've kind of touched on some of these things already, but what kinds of things do you see people commonly getting wrong in fantasy, whether that's television or books or, you know, just a fan like me who might not have a great understanding? Yeah, uh, well, I think we've already touched on all the military aspects and there's no need to grind more on that stone. But especially if we're talking medieval Europe, which is pretty popular in fantasy as an inspiration, I think in general, when we look and look at the past, we underestimate it, we simplify it. We, we don't know much about the past and maybe we assume that's all there is to know. So we underestimate how complex society was even back then and also how connected it was. Uh, for instance, just like a very quick example, if you were a merchant in northern Italy, you might travel for hundreds of miles to a market or a fair in France to sell your goods. And should something happen that you get waylaid and bandits steal all your items, you could go to the local lord and he would be forced to compensate you for your loss because it was his job to keep the road safe. And of course, he's being compelled to this by the guilds whose interest and power comes from trade and the king of the land whose in income comes from the trade and fair and so on. So this is just like a very basic example, but it wasn't this lawless society of violence and as we might usually imagine it or see it portrayed as it has you know, complex laws and systems and mechanisms in place to make society work. That's that's an interesting point because that example that you can just pull off the top of your head is not something I would have ever thought about. I guess, especially, you know, as a fantasy reader, I typically think about the military side of things or the fighting or maybe just like basic living conditions. Uh, but I don't really think about the economic side of things very much. Yeah, and that's probably because it's, hard to make economics very action or exciting, especially in a fantasy story. So I definitely understand why it is rarely touched upon. But it is interesting if you're interested in history, because trade and economics is usually what drives innovation or change. Uh, and the medieval period, as much as any, had all of these things. It's when the first universities were founded in Europe. Um, trade has always been you know, a necessity of life to create wealth and connecting people. Even remote villages and towns would have had peddlers come through selling spices or other such little luxury items that you could not make in your home. And even further back, if you look at the Bronze Age, Bronze is only possible if you combine tin with copper to make the alloy, but tin is relatively rare. So even as far back, I mean, more than 3000 years ago, you would have vast trading networks allowing tin to be brought where there was also copper. So you could create a new metal and which in itself, again, allowed new innovations and new changes in society. I know, uh, at least with my historical knowledge, uh, the main things I'm aware of 
when I'm reading or watching TV now, I have, thanks to you, an irritated twitch whenever I hear a sword rasp out of its sheath or uh, read about someone firing a bow. I'm so glad I kind of done that to you. That, that pleases <laughs> me immensely. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's the little things, you know, one step at a time. Exactly. Got to take the small victories. Yep. Uh, and so if you had to pick, uh, say, one or two history books to recommend to writers to help them correct some of these common misconceptions uh, and just in general make their stories a little bit more historically accurate, uh, what would they be? And I guess I'm mostly thinking about medieval European settings here, since, like you said, uh, that's kind of what a lot of fantasy draws from, although that's far from all the genre has to offer. Yeah, there is there is one book which I think is perfect. It should be a must read. It is called uh, The Discarded Image. It's by C.S. Lewis, funnily enough, who, other than also being a fantasy writer, was a brilliant medievalist. And in The Discarded Image, which is a relatively short book, I've read it three times myself because it doesn't take much time. But in it, he goes through the medieval worldview, how a medieval person understood the world and the universe, how it was ordered, the cosmos, with the planets and the celestials and the seven heavens, how the human body and spirit and mind related to animals. And so it's this vast model and all the inspiration that the medieval world drew upon and how it arranged this in like this perfect mosaic where everything has its place and is part of a greater whole. And it's an amazing book for both explaining or doing away with the misconception that this was a simple time and that you know people were uneducated or didn't create art or had much of an understanding. And it will really help you just under, get in the right mindset of how this world was and how the worldview was. Okay, yeah, that sounds really interesting. You know, I pretty much was mostly aware of C.S. Lewis for his Narnia books and some other writings beside, but I didn't realize he was such a medievalist. Uh, exactly. If, if you read it and rather his related works, he's very thorough with his sources, points out exactly where things originate from. So he, he's really brilliant in this aspect as a scholar and researcher. And the discarded image is also, just because it's such a short and simple read, it's definitely worth it if you're interested in medieval Europe. And um, the other book that I think is also really worthwhile is called The Silk Roads by Peter Frankopan. And it is kind of the much the opposite. It's, it's world history, so it's a big chunk. It's a lot to read. But it is world history from the viewpoint of Asia, and Middle East, North Africa. So instead of always being focused on Europe, especially in the West, that's the history viewpoint we're taught. But now you get to go through all these events from the other viewpoint. And instead of always learning how did Europe influence the world, you understand how the world has influenced Europe. And a lot of the things we already talked about, how connected the world is, how trade connected Europe with Asia and North Africa and how the influences that this spawned and again how complex society was even back then it's a really brilliant book for just filling a lot of gaps in one's knowledge about history and europe and also introducing you to all the fascinating history outside of europe from antiquity and even up until modern times my goal uh for this upcoming year is definitely uh, reading more history. And I do actually have the Silk Road sitting on my bookshelf at home. Uh, so I'm hoping to dig into that. Well, I'm very pleased to hear that. And I don't think you'll regret it. So speaking of historical accuracy and books that strive for it, can you tell us a little bit about your Chronicles of Adalmearch and the shared universe you write in? And I'm really hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly because I've never had to say it out loud before. That is the curse of fantasy, isn't it? When you've always yes. read <laughs> and suddenly you have to speak. Uh, so <laughs> I understand your anxiety. But yes, uh, of course, happily. Uh, as I previously mentioned, you know, it's been my childhood ambition to create a secondary world of my own that felt real, live, vivid. Uh, and this is my attempt, you might say, 
So it, it's a vast world where a lot of the focus is taken from or inspired by medieval Europe. But firstly, even medieval Europe was not monolithic. It It is a continent and it had lots of different cultures and you know, regions with their own unique traits. Um, so, of course, that's what I've done as well. And as I also mentioned, even back then, Europe was heavily influenced by the other continents. And I felt the need to replicate that as well. So there are also areas and settings that are not European at all and sort of help account for the different cultural influences that I insert here and there. And and the end result is that thanks to this large world with so many differences and various regions, I'm able to write any kind of story I really want because any kind of character, any kind of background or power structure in society or other events that would facilitate whatever story I want to tell. Well, I can find a location somewhere in my world that gives me all the factors and conditions that I need. So you said you can write so many stories in it. So you have more than one story set in this world. Is that correct? Yes. um, I'm writing firstly uh, an epic series, which is partly what you would expect with high fantasy or that kind of epic fantasy, but also contains lots of little stories because there are so many characters. But then I also have a standalone or companion story with um, called The Prince of Cats, which is set in a completely different part of the world, completely different story, different style, everything. So the books are in the same universe, but otherwise they have nothing in common. Right. And so uh, your first book in that epic series is The Eagle's Flight, I believe. Uh, And so is that a web serial? It has become that because uh, I realized there was an interesting audience there as well. So I'm doing both. I publish it as ebooks. I also sell uh, like high quality hardcovers on my Patreon. And then I upload it as a web serial. So I'm sort of doing a bit of everything because I'm mostly interested in just sharing my writing and finding readers where I can. Right. That makes sense. And I know I always appreciate even for uh, writing that maybe I can read online for free, uh, having a nice copy to uh, proudly display on my bookshelf. And then, so you talked about the Prince of Cats. Uh, So what can you tell us a little bit more about that book? Uh, Where does it take place in your world? What kind of story are you trying to tell with that? Gladly. Uh, It takes place in a city state called Alcazar. And so if you happen to be an expert on a very particular field, you'll recognize that is a word from Moorish, which is we're talking West North Africa or Southern Spain, where in the Middle Ages, there was a very interesting um, crossroads between Islamic, Arabic, Moorish influence from the South and Christian, European from the North. So where in southern Spain, where Europe and Africa meets. Uh, So that's the setting. That's the primary inspiration. Uh, As for the story itself, it's the tale of of a master thief, the eponymous Prince of Cats, who terrorizes the city. And a lowly thief down on his luck, uh, Javad, is forced to try and track down the prince and bring him to justice, or he'll face the scaffold himself. I'm picturing in my head right now, just like this master thief who can control all of the cats. Is that at all accurate? I know this disappoints many, but the cats are metaphorical. Uh, While I do, I've enjoyed (laughs) putting in a lot of cat or feline references throughout the book. There aren't really any cats as such playing part as characters. Uh, it, It is sadly a metaphor. So where does that name, the Prince of Cats, come from then? Yeah, that's a bit of a topsy-turvy turn itself. Uh, The Prince of Cats is, you'll find references to this throughout literature, in fact. Um, Probably most famous, Romeo and Juliet. uh, Juliet's cousin, Tybalt, is known as the Prince of Cats for his anger. Because in French folklore, there is uh, 
the wily fox Renard, and his enemy is Tibbert, the angry, furious prince of cats. And even in Lord of the Rings, um, in the early manuscripts, Sauron, our great enemy, was originally named Tevildo, the prince of cats. So, so it's, it's like a general character in European literary tradition related to cats and with this image of a furious, vengeful spirit. And that fit very well on the character that I wanted to write or, or make this story about. And also the connotation of cats, a cat burglar, or someone who has you know the skills and abilities of a cat, which is very useful when you are a thief. Yes, uh, as someone who owns two cats, I can say that thief-type activities are very common among cats. Um, so uh, you mentioned that this is kind of set in an analog of, say, southern Spain, where all of these cultures are coming together. Uh, so I guess that kind of inspires two questions for me. Uh, the first is, you know, this is technically a European setting, but this is not the kind of of setting that jumps to mind when people typically say my fantasy book is based on Europe. So are there other areas of, say, European history or geography that you think people probably should be exploring in fantasy, but maybe they're not? Oh, yes, most definitely. Uh, because li like we mentioned already, Europe is not monolithic and it wasn't ever back then. What we think about as very typical medieval Europe fantasy is primarily French. That's how France was in the medieval times. And France is, after all, just one small part of Europe. Um, so the Italian city-states, for instance, completely different kind of government than, you know, your typical monarchy and very different politics and how the city worked. Or um, Eastern Europe with Slavic mythology, which has been very underutilized. We've not seen much of that. And Poland-Lithuania, which was the Commonwealth, which is a, an enormous uh, country back then, and which also had an election-style kingdom. Again, a completely different kind of monarchy that is so very rarely ever used uh, as a setting or... Um, and, and so on. Like, pretty much every region of Europe has some kind of cultural or historical uniqueness to it that, and of course, all the folklore and local tales and legends, all of this, which you could no doubt turn into a great tale if, if you wanted to, if you had the inspiration. That's, that's really interesting. Uh, and I know maybe part of the reason why this is not as common is, you know, existing fantasy books that are in kind of the popular culture mindset are kind of medieval Europe. And so people just assume that that's what they should be writing about. But when they do write about other areas and cultures like this, I know that can kind of be a tricky thing, paying proper respect to other cultures if you're drawing on them for your fantasy world. Uh, well, really any writing in general. Uh, are there any common pitfalls you think that writers make when they're writing about these other cultures? Yes, I can certainly think of a few that I've also struggled with myself or had to be very mindful of. I think the first one that you typically do is that you draw upon the stereotypes that you know, because that's what comes to mind when you think of this particular place. And especially perhaps if you're making a larger setting and this is just a small part of it, this is not the main area. So you don't devote so much time and attention to it. You might just draw upon the most obvious stereotypes because that's easy and quick for you and probably your audience will recognize it as well but of course that becomes pretty shallow and certainly can show a, a lack of respect for this place that you are drawing inspiration from because you didn't really bother to go more than one pace into its history and background i think that's like the most common pitfall but also easily avoidable if you just put in some research. One that is more nefarious, a little harder to avoid or discover is when you make this other place all in service to your plot or your main character from another place that 
this other culture you're writing, this other background doesn't seem like it is its own place. It has its, it only exists in service to something else, to your protagonist, most likely, or something. Then again, it, it doesn't feel like its own place. You haven't really afforded it the respect it deserves to be considered its own living space. You've just made it, you've just grabbed some things that you needed to make your story work. I know a kind of a common trope or piece of writing advice is to introduce readers to your world through the eyes of an outsider. So you kind of have this reason for explaining things to them yeah. uh, and having the reader learn along with you. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't always work if you're drawing on like actual historical cultures and other real life people uh, as the world that they're exploring. It, that's why it's a pitfall, I suppose, because it can it makes sense and it can be well-meaning. But if everything that happens is in service to this outsider, that everything points towards them or everything is only in relation to them, well, you've, you've created kind of a servant culture or something, if you like meta textually, which is just a bad way of going about it. Uh, going back, I guess, to Prince of Cats, being that it's inspired by all these cultures from the Middle East, what kind of research did you do to prepare for this book and make sure you were approaching that uh, as carefully and as accurately as possible? Yeah, I had several things. Um, I'd already been to southern Spain. Um, I vi visited the Moorish palaces, primarily the Alhambra in Granada was the most famous one. And But taking in a lot of the various uh, you know, local attractions, you might say. Um, and I took another trip later on to southern Portugal just to do my research on the ground, uh, the actual places. There are things that, you know, you won't be able to ever read or see in a book. It's only there in, in the geographical location. So that that's like the first step. Uh, and I spent somewhere between three to six months reading books and articles, just researching up on the history and culture and architecture of this region and related. And then finally, I'm very fortunate to have an existing reader who is from Yemen, so uh, who knows classical Arabic and could consult with me on all that I needed to use of Arabic words and phrases and such. And when the book was finished, uh, did a sensitivity reading for me and just made sure that everything was done the right way, you might say. Right. That that sounds definitely like considerably more research than went into some of the books that I've read in the past. And I guess then my follow-up question is, how do you know when you've done enough research? You know, what is enough? That's a hard question, of course, because if it's something you don't know about, you can't know that you need to know this. Uh, but But of course, like, you can always say that more research is useful, but just in practical terms, at some point you have to stop. You have to actually write. For me, I, it's usually if I feel that I have completely understood a, a concept or just a single word that I want to use, the, you know, the, the meaning, the connotations of this word, I feel confident. You know, I checked with my consultant and such that this is what it means. This is how it is understood and such. All the different concepts or terms or phrases that I use, I should have a, be confident in my understanding of each of them and how I use them, that it is done with respect and in the correct way, so to say. If, if you can say with confidence you've done your research on all the things that you're going to use and how they relate to each other and the context that you are now putting them into... Well, I suppose that is as much as you could really hope for uh, and actually still have time to start writing. That's a good point. Enough is kind of arbitrary, and I guess you can only really hope to do it as much justice as you're capable of. 
there's always room to do more. But like you said, at some point, you do actually have to sit down and write. Um, so speaking of writing, I believe you're working on a new book now. You've mentioned before in an interview with Timmy from Rockstarlet Book Asylum that it's based on the saga of Torkel the Tall. So can you talk a little bit about that book? Of course. Uh, I figured that perhaps I should write my next book in a, with a background that didn't require six months of research just for once, go easy on myself. <laughs> so I, I turned to my own native Scandinavia for that. Uh, also because I figured I had a unique approach or background knowledge to write in English about Scandinavian themes and background and hopefully would be able to you know, write a book that reflects that. So uh, I've written my own little saga, you might say. And the sagas are always about two things. Uh, it's about revenge and about journeys. So that's the same here that our good man Torkil uh, loses everything and decides to go on revenge. But the object of his vengeance is Odin, the king of the gods. So how do you kill a god? And that is what brings him on his journey through the nine realms, trying to uncover the lore or secret of how can he wound and kill a god. That uh, sounds pretty fascinating. <laughs> um, and so it's interesting to me because Torkel the Tall seems to be an actual, like, factual from this world historical figure. Uh, so Odin is... I guess, depending on your views, maybe less factual. So is this going to be a historical fiction work or closer to, I guess, maybe historical fantasy or mythological fantasy? It, it will begin very briefly as historical fiction and then immediately branch into what I'd say mythological fantasy. You might say our world, if the Norse mythology was real, uh, but as I mentioned that he will be going on a journey through the nine realms, uh, our story pretty quickly leaves Midgard or Earth, if you wish, and we journey to the other realms. So it very quickly becomes full on mythological and leaves all pretense of being a historical fantasy behind. <laughs> and uh, I guess we should mention, I think you said the working title is Odin's Eye. It is indeed. Okay, that uh, leads me down all kinds of thought processes imagining how this could go uh, from my very limited knowledge of Norse mythology. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, one of the ideas with it, also why I've written the plot as this journey, was also to be able to introduce Norse mythology to people who have, have the very superficial knowledge and nothing more, but are interested um, so while the, the story is pretty short, pretty high paced, the idea is that, you know, you go through hell, the realm of the dead and through the realm of the dwarves and the Jotun and so on. And you meet gods and other creatures in Torkil's interactions with them in his quest so that hopefully while reading a good story, you also get a tour de force through Norse mythology. Um, so that's a good point that you mentioned that uh, maybe a lot of people are not that familiar with Norse mythology. So I know me personally, my primary experience with it is with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that's probably not 100% accurate to Norse mythology. So what kinds of things with this do you think people aren't aware of with Norse mythology? Yes, there's probably a number of things, but there is definitely one thing that that is a pet peeve for me, which I will now ruin for you as well, as I've previously <laughs> ruined other things. In fact, um, the Marvel is a good place to start. If you remember the first four movie, they fight frost giants. Um, is that correct? E I think so. Yes. And there is generally in Norse mythology, there is the like a race of giants in several of the realms who are the enemies of the gods, if you are familiar with that. Okay, I'm, I'm very uh, passingly familiar with that. 
that's that's good. That's um, that's enough to for this explanation, <laughs> uh, because yeah, there is this race of giants who are seen as generally the enemy of the gods, and that's why, for instance, in Marvel you have well, then there are frost giants, and there is oh, in the third movie it's a fire giant, uh, and so on. So there are these giants running around, and here's the kicker: uh, there are no giants in Norse mythology. Really. I see that mm. all the time in like every every fantasy yes. story that I've read. I know. Now you know how I feel. Uh, in fact, <laughs> what led me down to wondering what this is, it's our mutual acquaintance, uh, the dastardly Hugh Gregg. He once asked me, like, what would happen if a giant had a child with a dwarf in Norse mythology? And I, I spent a couple of minutes thinking, think, well, I don't, there aren't really giants like this. This is not a valid question, but it made me realize why do people think there are giants? Where did this concept come from? Because in Scandinavia, like in all our you know, comic books and stories and all our media, you know, they're always portrayed. They're called um, the Jutna, by the way. I should actually use a name for them. The, the Jutna are always just portrayed as these normal sized beings. And, and I never understood how, why is it in English media, they are always portrayed as giants. And as it turns out, it's an error in translation. Really? Yes. Um, and it's going to get a little hairy now. But as I mentioned, the the Norse word is, in Old Norse, is jötna, or plural, uh, sorry, singular, is jötun. And Old English does have a cognate, like the same word, which is, if you ever heard of an etin, which is like a monster or monster type that you might see in D&D or such. But that's like the original uh, word or cousin of the Norse word. But what happened was that the word etin was replaced by the word giant from French and Latin and such. Uh, it, because of uh, translations in the Bible where there are, you know, a race of giants that are the enemies of God. And this was considered, oh, this makes sense in Norse mythology. These are also enemies of the gods. And so instead of being called Etins, they were called giants. And that now, hundreds of years later, has given rise to this misconception in the English-speaking world that there were giants. Interesting. So I guess... The misconception is that they were giants, but there still is like this race that was in opposition to the gods. Exactly. Um, the the Jotna are definitely a big part of the mythology and they're often portrayed or certainly many of them are enemies of the gods uh, or, you know, in an antagonistic relationship with them. And what makes it even more confusing is that they do have powers to shapeshift. So there are individual stories where one of them like briefly assumes a giant shape for some kind of trick he's playing and then returns to normal size. So it can be very tricky to understand. But it's very obvious that in all the stories, whenever you have you know, the gods and the humans and the Jotna, they interact, that they're the same size, they're on the same level. Uh, so it's just, yeah, it's an error in translation. The, the Jotna definitely in, exist and are part of the mythology, but they shouldn't be considered giants. They are just average humanoids in that regard. <laughs> so I guess uh, if one of them were to have a child with a dwarf, uh, how would that go then? Assuming that you know they can crossbreed, it would. I guess it would be a very tall dwarf. <laughs> okay, that's that's probably about what I should have expected. Um, but yeah, he will definitely be happy that he finally has an answer. Oh, yeah. Only a few <laughs> years later. So uh, I guess kind of the follow-up question to that is, I know uh, a lot of times with Norse mythology, you've typically got your protagonist is like your typical Viking warrior. And I'm guessing that maybe kind of with the common theme of this interview, there's some things that writers kind of don't explore or make mistakes with when they're writing about Viking culture. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, it's definitely always interesting for me to see portrayals. And 
I think what is very fascinating about Vikings is the fact, like in part their mythology, which does reward war because die in battle is how you go to Valhall. So, and the other thing that's interesting about Vikings is that they sail around and attack and plunder and raid. So it's the violence aspects that really make for a good story. And that's what gets emphasized in, in stories inspired by Vikings. But what is interesting, for instance, is that one of the primary deities of Norse mythology is the god of harvest, because most of them were farmers. And if the harvest was bad, you would probably starve. And also this tendency to focus on the violence I think makes us imagine again a society you know that is very violent and driven towards violence and that's how all problems are solved but if you read the sagas there is a lot of time uh, or a lot of space devoted to law and matters of law and especially if there's been a killing trying to determine if this was justified uh, self-defense and what kind of what is called a wear guild as in what kind of compensation can be paid to the family of the slain so that they do not initiate a blood feud. So there were lots of laws and systems and mechanisms in place precisely to quell violence and to prevent blood feuds and such from happening. One really funny example is that there were certain insults it was forbidden by law to use. Because if you insulted another man in this way, his only recourse to defend his honor was to challenge you to a duel. And of course, a duel would mean one or the other person would be slain, their family would get mad and try to take revenge. So in order to prevent feuds, these insults were simply outlawed. Uh, so, you know, I have to ask, what is an example of one of those insults? Those are words that I will not repeat on this podcast, but they are very <laughs> disparaging remarks about the masculinity and behavior of the other person. <laughs> fair enough. Uh, fair enough. So, uh, as you said, this is kind of a story that you were able to write with kind of a more intimate knowledge without doing a ton of research like you would do when you're exploring a story based on another culture. But is there any particular book or history source that you found useful when you were preparing for this book? Definitely. Um, in fact, I, I can think of several sites that each have something useful. Unfortunately, the, the Big, the my main source I used, which is called Heimskringla.no, it has all the source text in original format, but it is not accessible in English. So, unless our, our readers are familiar with Scandinavian languages, that sadly is not really accessible. Uh, but there are fortunately a lot of other resources in English online. There is one called uh, sacred-texts.com, which has an introduction to the mythology, all the original texts, but sort of written together as a cohesive text. That So that gives you a very good impression, like the closest thing you can get to reading the source material while, without it actually having to read something that is rather difficult and inaccessible, perhaps. It's a good presentation and introduction to a lot of the mythology uh, that I, I've looked through and I feel confident recommending. Uh, there's another site called norse-mythology.org, which is more like uh, Wikipedia-style articles. So it has an article on the different gods and um, different events and such. And again, you know, reliable and accurate in information and enormously useful for just having if you have a question you need answered you check that article uh, and then the last one that i've used pretty much uh, or quite a lot myself has a funny name it's called vikinganswerlady.com uh, <laughs> and she does i emailed her and she did answer me so it checks out uh, it's also a list of articles but rather than mythology the topic is the society of the norse uh, world so it's it's simple things like clothing and food, but also religion, 
rituals, um, language and names and such. Again, you know, with lots of sources, everything is very properly annotated. And I've had a lot of use for that for myself, just checking up on little details or facts. So uh, those are all good sites that I would recommend. And I guess kind of my natural question then also is, uh, so Odin's Eye, uh, do you have any plans on when it's actually going to be available for readers? Not as such, no. Um, it's the, the draft is finished. I'm having it edited. And then once the editing is process is done, I will look into publication. But that that step is still in the distant future. So unfortunately, I can't say when, but I can promise you that probably Fantasy Inn will be the first to know. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, I know with your uh, past history of publication and work ethic, when you say distant future, uh, we're not talking about maybe next decade or anything. No, a year or two more likely. Okay, yeah. Uh, well, I look forward to that. And on that note, uh, are there any other future projects you have floating around? Indeed. Uh, the question is always which one to choose. But I, I have decided the next major thing I will uh, wrestle with will be an, an actual web serial, you know, conceived as a web serial and written as such, uh, inspired more by Warhammer and Renaissance era technology. So you'll have early gunpowder, early cannons, and then battle mages. Uh, and what really excites me about that is I've come up with a ma magic system based, in fact, on medieval worldview and the discarded image. So it all works together perfectly. And I really look forward to writing these scenes and how inventive I can be with using the magic system on the battlefield with against cannons and sharpshooters and all of those factors in play. That sounds like it hits so many of my interests as a fantasy geek that I'm super excited about it. Well, again, I can promise you Fantasy Inn will be the first to know once the first chapter is <laughs> uploaded. Fantastic. And then, so I guess starting to close things out, are there any fantasy books that you've enjoyed that you feel do a particularly good job of getting the historical details right? I know... Uh, a lot of this has kind of focused on what people get wrong um, and things we wish they could do better. But I'm sure there's some good examples out there, too. So are there any that you can recommend? I, I think probably the, the premier name within this brand would be Guy Gabriel K. His books are, you know, very heavily inspired by history. Uh, I imagine probably most people have heard his name, but if you haven't checked out his books, then it's definitely worth doing that. Um, the there is another, it's called the Baroque Cycle. It's not really fantasy, so I feel a little bit cheating, but I feel it also deserves honorable mention for being the most historically obsessed book series I've ever read. Uh, and the, the funniest example to me is at one point, one of the major characters, uh, his father is a firebrand preacher who has predicted or calculated the second coming of Christ will happen in 20 years. So he sends his son, our character, to Oxford College to learn Aramaic so that there is someone who can speak with Jesus in his native language when he returns. Uh, that, that level of detail <laughs> um, gets me on board. Yeah, that, that sounds fascinating. And uh, who is the writer for that series? It's Neil Stevenson. Okay, I will uh, absolutely have to check that out then. It's a very uh, dense book. It, it's kind of like reading history that just happens to be read as fiction. So just a, a caveat, it's not for everyone. I found it very dense myself, but you will learn a lot of interesting history things if you dare plow through it. Sounds like one of those books that... Uh... I will excitedly pick up and excitedly tell people that I've read. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, I have a whole shelf of those. Yep, yep, I do too. So uh, to wrap things up, what's one thing that you're ridiculously excited about right now? And I mean, that can be absolutely anything, doesn't have to relate to anything else we've covered in this interview. Well, if it can be anything, this I think does relate a lot, but might not be the most Certainly not the most literary answer. I think the thing I'm most excited about right now is a computer game. 
uh, when I was a wee boy of some 10, 12 years, uh, I played a game or a series called Baldur's Gate, which is RPG. It's the Dungeons and Dragons set in Forgotten Realms. And it was the best gaming experience of my life. And now, 20 years later, they're making a third game. And I cannot wait to return once more to the streets of Baldur's Gate and return to that world. It will be glorious. That sounds amazing. Yeah, I know I'm not a particularly experienced gamer, but I do have fond memories of the second Baldur's Gate game when I was younger. So maybe I'll have to check this out. I think you should, because I need people to talk about the game with. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Well, I think that about wraps everything up. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Daniel Olison. I think I can safely say that this has been our most informative interview yet. Well, I think the pleasure has at least half been mine, if not all mine. It's been really fun to discuss all these things with you, destroy some people's perceptions of Norse mythology and ruin lives, perhaps even the process. (laughs) And I certainly hope to do this again another time. I've had a wonderful hour with you. Yeah, absolutely. You're welcome back anytime. You can find Daniel Olison on Twitter as at Quill of a Doll or on his website, annalsofadoll.net. You can find a link to both The Eagle's Flight and Prince of Cats in the show notes, along with the books Daniel mentioned in the episode. If you like stories with vivid worlds that feel like real places and get most of those pesky little historical details right, you're in for a treat with Daniel's work. And as always, you can find us online at thefantasyn.com. If you're enjoying the podcast and feel like helping us improve the show, we just launched a Patreon. You'll get lots of fun perks like an invitation to our patron-only Discord channels, early access to episodes, plus bonus content and articles. And in return, we can cover our hosting costs, up our audio quality, and start planning some really awesome bonus episodes for you. That's all for this week. See you next time.